It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I am excited to have Jane Epstein with me. Jane, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Where in the world are you, Jane? I am outside the Bay Area in California. Okay. Is it nice and warm down there? Today, it's actually chilly and windy, but the good news is it's not smoky this morning, so that's great. <laughs> yes. Well, this might be old news by the time this airs in January, but is Newsom going to shut the state down? I don't think so. I don't think so. I haven't heard that. We keep, I think we, he's... <laughs> we keep hearing... Uh, hearing scary things about, about California, but we're from Montana. So everything about California seems scary sometimes. <laughs> well, um, but at the risk of offending anybody, I am not a California native. I do love it here. I do love the weather and I do love all the activities, but yes, it is still California. It's a bit off at times. <laughs> yes. Well, let me tell our guests a little bit about you. Jane is a sibling sexual abuse survivor, expert and advocate who speaks publicly about and provides guidance and tools for prevention and victim recovery. Jane spent 40 years in a continual state of dissociation. She was in and out of therapy. And despite marrying and being blessed with two children, she became depressed and suicidal. Sobriety and self-reflection led her to write her story. And that is where she encountered the answers. As she began, she Googled sibling sexual abuse only to find one or two outdated sites leading her to believe she was alone. Jane shares her story via podcast interviews and a memoir that is in progress to remove the shame for SSA survivors and let them know they're not alone. Someone in the world is waiting to hear their story. Jane's passion, work, and life mission are to bring awareness of the staging, staggering statistics of SSA, a largely ignored segment of sexual abuse, and make body safety conversations between parents and children an everyday conversation. Boy, I just read that last sentence and that is so important. Um, body safety, being able to have open conversations with your children. Do you think that's something that uh, people are not very open about? I do think it, it it's it creates anxiety and it can be fear. And you're not sometimes people aren't sure where to find the resources. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that if we read our children body safety books starting when they're around age three and mm -hmm. teaching the proper proper body terms and reading them 10 or 12 different books on body safety and secrets. That way they hear it 10 or 12 different ways, 10 or 12 different times. I wish I could work with Amazon and get them to bundle 10 or 12 of these body safety books together and oh, sell them at a discount. That would be amazing. Right. Yeah. But I do think that's where it starts. I think prevention is key. Do you think um, parents are under informed as far as what kind of resources there are out there to talk to kids about body safety? I think they, I think they may be because unless you're looking for it, you may not come across it and you may say, you know, stranger danger and kind of brush on the subject mm -hmm. a little bit, but there's, there's a lot that we need to talk to our kids about. And when they enter puberty, that's a huge, huge area of concern for me. 
that's how sibling sexual abuse can start. Or when children come across pornography, it can start. So we can't just stop talking to our kids when they're five years old and stop checking in on them. We still need to check on them in them when they spend overnights or when they enter puberty, we need Mm -hmm. to make sure that they have a place that they can get their questions answered. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, uh, I think that's great and important work. So um, let's talk a little bit about your personal story um, and back up into kind of childhood. Like how were you raised and where were you raised at and what was your family like? Sure. I grew up in Colorado. I was a third born. I had two older brothers. My mom had the two babies and then she decided she wanted to have a girl. She was determined to have a girl and she kind of tricked my dad into getting intimate and prayed for a little girl and she got her little girl. My dad at the time had said, I'm done having kids. So he didn't quite ever really take me in under his wing and he wasn't sure what to do with a little girl. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was probably my first, my first little hurdle. And he was actually a school psychologist. And he was busy at the school teaching other children and helping other children and, and, and taking them out of high-risk environments, but he wasn't focused on what was going on at home. I was raised in a Christian home. We went to church every Sunday. We had family dinners. And so in, for all outside purposes, it seemed like a happy, normal family. Mm-hmm. Did, your mom, um, did your mom work outside the home or was she, was she home? She was home part of my childhood. And then she started becoming unhappy in the marriage. And so she decided to go back to school. She started teaching and I would ride to a Christian school with her. We would ride to school in the car and we'd sing Christian hymns and she would drop me off in the, in the classroom. And it was for, it's, I was a hat for the first six years of my life. I remember being a happy, playful, silly, shy child. Shy, huh? Shy. I was shy. (laughs) Wow. I've never been accused of being shy. I've been accused of being a lot of things, but shy isn't one of them. (laughs) So, um, so when you were six, um, you had some traumatic things that began to happen. So can you share a little bit about that? Sure. I have a unique situation. I was sexually abused by an older sibling and I know exactly how it started because I was able to ask him questions later in life. When I was six, he was 12, 12 year old boys. They're going through a lot of changes. I'm not excusing it, but I'm just trying to put the stage where he was at. And we were watching a TV show and I, we were all in my bed and my mom hollered down the hallway and she said, Hey, everybody, it's time to get ready for bed. And I was six and I hopped off the bed and I got changed. His version of the story is he saw me and realized he had questions. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, he decided I'm going to try and get her alone and either in the bathroom or when I'm babysitting her when she's asleep. And he did, he did start sexually abusing me. And I, I recall snippets of it. And I think like a lot of survivors, I kind of recall leaving my body and I can see myself floating up to the ceiling and watching that little girl and that little boy. And I can kind of describe it as I felt like a science project. I Mm. felt poked and prodded. Um, dissociation like that is not something that is talked about a lot or understood a a lot, but, um, that sense of being outside of yourself and separating yourself from whatever trauma is happening to your body. Um, it talked to me a little bit about that. Sure. I did not understand it at the time. 
And I also did not understand that that would become a numbing mechanism for me to survive the next 35 years to, to hide the shame, to hide who I was, to, to pretend that I was not that little girl. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to connect that little girl with me. And I'm still, that's still a work in progress. I I still refer to her as the third person, right? but she keeps knocking on my door saying, Hey, Hey, look at me. Hey, I need some attention. She sometimes stomps her feet and says, listen to me, listen to me. And I definitely disassociated. And the way I've been able to slowly connect my mind and my body is through becoming alcohol free and honestly exercise, connecting my mind and my body. Mm-hmm. You know, exercise, physical activity is so important. Um, I have the reason why I'm kind of pitching a tent on this point for a minute is I have a dissociative disorder. And, uh, and, and so I kind of know what you're talking about. For me, um, exercise is key. And yoga was really key for me yeah. to kind of connect, connect my body. And now I swim. And so it just is, um, yeah, that connection is super important that that movement. So right. Um, so did you, um, as you, as you got older, that sense of dissociation, when were you able to identify that that was a numbing mechanism for you? It snuck up on me. I'll be really honest. You talked about yoga. I started doing this form of exercise. It's called the Legree method. So you move really slowly and Mm -hmm. you, you work your muscles to a point of exhaustion because I had tried running. I had tried spinning. I had tried boxing. I had really tried to outrun my trauma. It -hmm. didn't work. I just ended up with blisters and infected toenails. So seriously, it did not work. I could not outrun my trauma. But when I started moving slowly, probably like yoga and really feeling the mind body connection, I, I performed that for about four years. And all of a sudden I started realizing, wait a second, I'm slowly becoming one. And I didn't set out to do that, but it kind of just happened by the, by that accident. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So you say that you were able to talk to your brother later about the sexual abuse at what time, at what age did you become um, aware that this was actually abuse and it was a real thing in your life? Right. I spent years thinking it was just a sibling. He was curious. I was curious. It was two kids being curious. I can't be messed up from that. That, that can't be a thing. And I put that away. And when I was 21 years old, he had his first child and I went to go see the child and and he pulled me aside and he said, I'm sorry for what I did to you when you were a little girl. And I, my mind thought, what, what, what did you do to me? And I thought, no, 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 not that, not that. And my response was, it's okay. I participated. Mm. And I, put it back away and forgot about it. And again, thought it, it was just two kids being curious, not a big deal. I went through several events in my life and in my second marriage, got remarried and we had two kids and something happened inside the marriage. I don't need to go into details and a memory was placed and it would not go away. Mm. And I started becoming more angry more depressed, more volatile. But I thought, you know what? My marriage isn't perfect. It's, it's a stressful marriage. We have two children a year and a week apart. 
course I'm unhappy or maybe I'm still grieving my late husband because my first husband had passed away. And I thought it was all those things. It couldn't be the abuse. And so I said to my husband, finally, I said, we need to go to marriage counseling because I wanted to get him fixed. I thought it was all him. (laughs) (laughs) And when you go to therapy, they usually have you do some work as well. So we both worked pretty hard for about five years. And the marriage counselor turned to me one day, finally, and he said, I have to tell you, this just isn't fitting. Your anger doesn't match the circumstances. And I think there was something inside of me. I was finally ready to share. And I said, well, my brother sexually abused me thinking I'll just throw it out there. And I felt the counselor lean in. I felt my husband lean in and he said, what do you mean mess with you? I couldn't say the words sexual abuse. I couldn't say molest. And now I can finally say them. And I said, they can't, it wasn't that big a deal though. Was it? He said, no, that, that is a big That's deal. A and he started, deal. yeah, he started asking me how many, how long it went on and, and how, and, and I said, but I, I think I enjoyed the touch. And he said, that's what you told yourself. And that's actually normal. Your body reacted the way it was supposed to react because that was a huge, huge source of shame for me. Cause I thought, well, my body, it craved the touch. So I must've been a willing participant. Right. Right. But when we go back and we dissect the whole thing, I was six. I wasn't consenting. I had no idea. And I, my body did what it was designed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how long did, uh, did the abuse go on? It went on for on and off for about six years. Okay. And I do believe that when he was 12, when it started, that he was operating from a 12 year old mindset, Mm -hmm. wasn't trying to be harmful. But, you know, you can start with curiosity, but after six years, you know, he became old enough to know right from wrong. So the, I struggle with that. And even as I'm sitting here with you today, I'm thinking, where do I draw that line of thinking, okay, I can forgive that 12 year old boy, but what about the 18 year old? Right. Right. Where do you, where do you put that in your mind? Yeah, and, yeah I can see that. Um, so you tried to outrun your trauma in a lot of different ways. What are some ways that you tried to outrun it? I ran marathons. I would work out six days a week, sometimes twice a week. I would drink. I would stay incredibly busy. I would basically, I stayed numb for 35 years. Mm -hmm. And did you just tell yourself that you were a, a driven person and this was just just who you are, or did you, did you have any kind of an inkling that, that you were trying to outrun something? That again, kind of snuck up on me because I spent a lot of time not understanding that I was running away from something. And then when I got remarried, I was depressed and I didn't understand that because I said to myself, well, you know, I I survived my late husband's death. I can't be depressed. I got through that. I can get through this. So it must be my marriage, my current marriage. It must be that. And when he, we had worked so hard for five years, there was a moment I actually had to finally turn inward and think, okay, maybe there's something inside of me that needs to be worked on. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started doing some serious (laughs) self-reflection. Right. So it wasn't something that you set out to discover that there was a hole inside of you. It just kind of, (laughs) kind of made itself obvious. 
It did. There's something inside of me. The best way I can describe it is I felt I, I was dying inside and I knew I had something to say, but I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to say it was the sexual abuse. I wanted to say it was something else. I wanted to say it was my marriage. I wanted to say it was my late husband's death. I wanted to say it was anything but that. But once I named it and said, okay, this is, this is, you know, I'll call it like a little stone in your shoe. This is what's been nagging at me. Once I could pull it out and start to process it and own it with some grace, that's when I was able to start shedding the layers of shame. Right. That's powerful when you're able to, when you're able to name it. Um, so uh, what was the, um, the spiritual life um, kind of, how was, how did this affect your spiritual life as you kind of got older and, and were processing these things in your, in your little mind? Yeah. Growing up in a Christian home, I'm glad I had that, that base because then as I became, as my brother, when he left, when he was 18 and I was 12, I had this sexual desire inside of me that I should not have had. And because of that, I started becoming very promiscuous at a young age and I started sleeping around and I actually became a stripper. So my spiritual life kind of went on the side. I say that I took a detour. Mm-hmm. And I met my my first husband, my late husband, and we went about our lives and didn't go to church. We were starting to struggle in our marriage because I was starting to sabotage that marriage because I think that's what I was trying to do because I wasn't truly known. He didn't know about the abuse and I did not want him to know. And so I just thought, well, I'll sabotage this marriage. But right around that time is when we learned that he was terminally ill with esophageal mm-hmm. cancer. And that's when God showed up in my life again. It was a very calming moment. He took me back in and I was able to surrender. I knew that I was getting ready to walk into something very serious that I had never encountered. I was 34 years old and I was getting ready to lose my husband, but I knew God was there and I knew he had me. And through my husband's death, I was forced to feel again. I had spent so many years numb. But when someone you lose dies, you are forced to feel you can't there. I couldn't avoid that pain. So being alive again and feeling, I actually felt some joy. Mm. And that's when I reconnected with God. And I started going back to church and I met my now husband and we started having some situations in our marriage because it was a tough marriage. It was tough. I came into the marriage with a lot of stuff. He's not perfect. Let me put that on the record. Yeah. (laughs) But I was struggling in my marriage, this marriage, and I tried to sabotage this marriage as well. And I went to go see a divorce lawyer. I almost put a deposit down on an apartment, but I had two kids. And in my mind, I was like, I know God hates divorce. And so I, I sat down with God and I begged him. I said, God, I need to know what to do with this. I can, I can accept the fact that I lost my first husband. I can see the beauty in that. I can't understand why the sexual abuse happened. And I can't understand why I'm unhappy in my marriage. I can't do this alone. I can't. And I had to just literally serve it up to him. Mm -hmm. So this is yours. If you don't want me to get married, if you don't want me to get divorced, you want me to stay in this marriage, you have to take it. And that became a daily practice, just surrendering my marriage over to God and slowly thanking God for my marriage and thanking God for my husband. That wasn't easy at first. I thought I can't be thankful for him, but okay, fine. And I, it got, became a habit. It became a habit. And so 
now every single day I spend 10 minutes with God and I do my devotional every single morning. You know, the, um, the book, the power of the praying wife, um, has a letter in the beginning or has a prayer and it says, Lord, um, give my husband a new spouse and let it be me. (laughs) And it's like, really? really let it be me. I wasn't, I wasn't praying. I mean, I went through this stage where I was, you know, I got this book because it's kind of the same idea. I'm going to fix them. God's going to fix them. And it's just like, you know, um, maybe, maybe it's me, maybe part of this, part of this problem could be me. It's hard. (laughs) It is hard. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think it was so hard for you to name the sibling sexual assault or sexual abuse? Why do you think it was so hard for you to articulate that? I I think I can point to this because this was my huge hurdle in my, in my process is understanding that my body reacted the way it was supposed to react and that my body craved the touch and that I actually started to seek him out. That was really really hard for me to understand and admit to. So there was so much shame with that. Yeah. And it was easier to put it aside and not, not deal with it. And then once it started rising up inside of me and I thought, okay, God, I can talk about grief. I can talk about sexual abuse, but God kept saying, no, you gotta go deeper than that. And I started Googling sibling sexual abuse and there's not much out there. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm not doing this. This is, this is not my story. This is not my thing. And I feel like God kept saying, no, no, this, this is, this is your thing. This is what you're supposed to address. And so I did start a Facebook page and I started putting some quotes out there about grief and sexual abuse, but not sibling sexual abuse. Once I started putting some quotes out there and, and talking about sibling sexual abuse, that's when people started reaching out to me in messenger or in private text saying that happened to me, or parents were reaching out to me saying that happened in our family. We didn't know, we had no idea that was a thing. And every time I wanted to quit, I would get another message. So the more I've been, I want to say, I don't want to say forced, but I I keep getting messages that I'm supposed to be talking about this. Right. I'm being validated that this is what I'm supposed to do. And I'm, I'm now that I'm out there more and more, I'm validated daily that we need to be talking about this. So many people are impacted by it. And mm-hmm. so many people think they're alone. I'm a moderator of a Facebook group. And just today, someone posted, you know, maybe it wasn't sexual abuse because it was a brother who was four years older than me. And the comments, so many people thought, oh my gosh, I thought it was just me. I thought I was crazy. It's, mm-hmm. it's a silent epidemic that's impacting so many lives. And that's why it's become my passion to talk about. Why do you think there is a void in information? I mean, there's a Facebook group and a website and, you know, Twitter feed for everything. Why do you think this is kind of a silent void? I do think there's a lot of shame involved. And I also think there's a lot of confusion. I know for me personally, there was a lot of confusion because he had access to me for such a long time and I didn't hate him. And in my situation, he didn't physically hurt me. He didn't threaten me. I know a lot of people in my situation have been physically hurt and physically threatened, but there's still so much shame. I mean, you think about your brother and your sister relationship and it's just, it's, it's icky and it's murky and 
there's a lot of confusion of, on a parent's involvement. They think, well, one, they'll outgrow it. They're just being curious. It might have started out with curiosity, right. but if their body reacts, which it probably will, they're not just going to stop. And if you just think, well, they'll outgrow it or it's just curiosity, then you're allowing the abuse to continue. And it goes on for so many years. And honestly, I think it's the shame. It's just in society, they hear sibling sexual abuse and they just shut down. I mean, I've had friends kind of shut me down or quit following me on Facebook or Instagram. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it, but I'm not going to go away. (laughs) Right. I think anything um, that has to do with anything incestuous, uh, society isn't ready for that, isn't ready to dialogue about it, let alone acknowledge some of these, some of these categories and people like you're talking about. Um, so you created complicated courage, right? Right. So what is that? I was coming around with the names for, you know, a website or a Facebook page and the word broken kept coming up. And I thought I'm broken right now when I started this. And I thought, hopefully I won't be broken forever. And I realized that my story is very complicated and I went through complicated grief with my late husband and it takes courage to talk about this. So it's complicated courage. (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. And so the website, is it, are you blogging or are you collecting stories or what is, what is the main purpose of it? I, I'm trying to find my people and I would love to somehow create a platform for sibling sexual abuse survivors, but people don't want to come forward. I, on my website, I started some blogs and I've got some podcasts and I've got a lot of resources for people. I've got over 80 resources in my back pocket. Um, so my website is really, if, if someone wants to write their story, I can write it anonymously. I can put it on my website. That's great. Or if you want to read my story, that's great. Or if you have ideas on how we can connect and build a platform for sibling sexual abuse survivors. Yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so what do you think your um, biggest challenge is living as an abuse survivor? That's pretty easy. I struggle with touch. Okay. If my husband reaches out and wants to touch my hand or grab my hand, I still get startled. I still have anxiety around kissing and intimacy, high anxiety with intimacy. And it's part of me. And Mm -hmm. I know some people want to say, move on. Your past does not define you. No, but it, it's, it's part of me. It's part of my history. It's, it's in my body. And now I'm an advocate. So right. I do live with it every day. And as an advocate, I hear stories every day and people reach out to me every day. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a coach. I'm a great listener and I have resources. And I, I hear these stories day in, day out. And my heart breaks. I can't take away the past, but we can educate the kids of the future and we can Mm -hmm. lessen the numbers. So I think the hardest part for me is I, I have this fire inside of me. I am a full-time advocate. I'm not making money from this. I'm not selling anything. And my intimacy, I I don't, I don't have intimacy. Mm -hmm. That's the big elephant in the room that does not seem to want to budge just yet. (laughs) 
Yeah, not. Um, so I, uh, how do people find, find you and, uh, connect with you if they'd like to? Sure. I pretty much where you Google Jane and complicated courage, you will find me. My website is complicatedcourage.com. You can message me there. You can find me on Instagram. You can message me there. It's Jane underscore complicated courage. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm putting my toes in the water on TikTok, just trying to get my message out there and, and really find my people. And please, if you need any resources, message me, find me. And yeah. if I can't, if I don't have the resources, I've got 1400 other advocates that I work with and we can find something. Absolutely. Great. Um, before I forget, I, I left kind of a, kind of a hanging, hanging fact here. Um, how is your family? Um, how did they deal with you coming out with this information and um, telling your story? I sh- first, my dad is my father is deceased, so he never knew. And I shared with my mom when I was around 24 that again, I said, he messed with me. Couldn't say the words. She teared up and she said, I believe you. And she said, how did this happen? Where was I? And then I started coming forward with my story publicly. And, and, and my mom said, what about him and his family? What about them? And I was very angry. And I used some curse words regarding his, him and his family because I pushed them all aside. And... I can go through my forgiveness journey. I'll try and go through the forgiveness journey quickly here. So when I was angry, I was still angry with him and I was starting to go public. And my mom kept saying, you need to forgive. You need to forgive. And I said, I don't need to do anything. Mm -hmm. But I kept hearing that word forgive. And I went for a massage and it was a male masseuse. I usually have females, but she was sick. And I went in the room and he started pushing the envelope and I froze and I thought, wait, did that happen? No, wait, did that happen? And I froze. Get through the massage. He leaves the room. I hop off the table and I felt embarrassment and I felt shame. And I started driving away and I thought, wait a second, I'm a 45 year old woman and I froze. I didn't know what to do. So how is that six-year-old girl to know what to do? And I was slowly able to forgive that six-year-old little girl. And then I was able to forgive myself. And then I felt ready to forgive my brother. And also during that time frame, because this wasn't overnight, this was a process. I received a message from one of my brother's daughters because she was graduating. And I begrudgingly sent her a check for graduation. And she sent me a thank you note. And she said, thank you so much. That meant the world to me because I thought you hated me. Mm. And I thought, okay. Now it's impacting the next generation. I need to get my act together. So I did reach out and I wrote my letter, a letter of forgiveness to my brother. And I thought, I don't have to mail it. I can just write it. <laughs> <laughs> but I raced down to the mailbox and I remember putting it in the mailbox and I was going up the driveway and I thought, I could take it out. No, it has to go. And I mailed it. And sure enough, he called me and he said, you know, I apologize to you when I, when you were 21, I really thought it was done. I didn't understand it was still impacting you. I had no idea. Mm. And that's when we started the communication and I started asking him questions, but I also was able to reach out to my mom and I said, okay, I have forgiven. 
And then she realized, oh, wait a second. Now I have my, I have to, yeah. She had to forgive him. She had to forgive herself and go through her own journey. So we're, it's still all a work in progress. And I think, I think that's a really important point, Jane, is that all of this is a process and it's not instantaneous. It didn't happen at an instant and it, and it doesn't get healed in an instant. Um, But I think if we're willing to invest in the process that it has, it has good rewards on the other side. So well, thank you so much for sharing your story and um, sharing how to get a hold of you. And, and we will link all of that in the website and uh, in the show notes. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, jillreilly.author and on Twitter, Jill Riley Author. Email jill at jillreilly.org.